A raw December Sunday afternoon in 1915, a day more like the old century than the new among the wood-framed tenements and horseshit-flecked cobblestones of Hoboken's Little Italy, aka Guinea Town. The air smells of coal smoke and imminent snow. The kitchen of the cold water flat on Monroe Street is full of women, all gathered around a table, all shouting at once. On the table lies a copper-haired girl, just nineteen, hugely pregnant. She moans hoarsely. The labor has stalled. The midwife wipes the poor girl's brow, and motions with her other hand. A doctor is sent for. Ten long minutes later, he arrives. Removes his overcoat and, with a stern look around the room, he is the lone male present. Opens his black bag. From the shining metallic array inside, he removes his dreaded obstetric forceps, a medieval-looking instrument, and grips the baby with it, pulling hard from the mother's womb. In the violent process, fearfully tearing the left side of the child's face and neck as well as its left ear. The doctor cuts the cord and lays the infant, a boy. Huge and blue and bleeding from his wounds and apparently dead, by the kitchen sink, quickly shifting his efforts to saving the nearly unconscious mother's life, the women lean in, mopping the mother's pallid face, shouting advice in Italian. One at the back of the scrum, perhaps the mother's mother, perhaps someone else, looks at the inert baby and takes pity. She picks it up, runs some ice cold water from the sink over it, and slaps its back. It starts. Snuffles, and begins to howl. Mother and child both survived, but neither ever forgot the brutality of that December day. Frank Sinatra bore the scars of his birth, both physical and psychological, to the end of his years. A bare rug, cherubic baby picture shot a few weeks after he was born was purposely taken from his right side, since the wounds on the left side of his face and neck were still angry looking. Throughout Sinatra's vastly documented life, he would rarely, especially if he had anything to do with it, be photographed from his left. One scar, hard to disguise though frequently airbrushed, ran diagonally from the lower left corner of his mouth to his jawline. His ear on that side had a bifurcated lobe, the classic cauliflower, but that was the least of it. The delicate ridges and planes of his left outer ear were mashed. Giving the appearance in early pictures of an apricot run over by a steamroller. The only connection between the sonic world and the external auditory meatus, the ear hole, was a vertical slit. Later, plastic surgery would correct the problem to some extent. That wasn't all. In childhood, a mastoid operation would leave a thick ridge of scar tissue on his neck behind the ear's base. A severe case of cystic acne in adolescence compounded his sense of disfigurement. As an adult, he would apply Max Factor pancake makeup to his face and neck every morning, and again after each of the several showers he took daily. Sinatra later told his daughter Nancy that when he was eleven, after some playmates began to call him Scarface, he went to the house of the physician who had delivered him, determined to give the good doctor a good beating. Fortunately, the doctor wasn't home. Even when he was in his early forties, on top of the world and in the midst of an artistic outpouring unparalleled in the history of popular music, the birth trauma, and his mother, were very much on Sinatra's mind. Once, in a moment of extraordinary emotional nakedness, the singer opened up very briefly to a lover. 
They weren't thinking about me, he said bitterly. They were just thinking about my mother. They just kind of ripped me out and tossed me aside. He was talking to Peggy Connolly, a young singer whom he met in 1955 and who, for almost three years at the apex of his career, would be as close to him as it was possible for anyone to be. The scene was Madrid, in the spring of 1956. Sinatra was in Spain shooting a movie he had little taste for. One night in a small nightclub, as he and the 24-year-old Connolly sat in the dark at the edge of the dance floor, she caressed his left cheek. But when her fingertips touched his ear, he flinched. She asked him what was wrong, and he admitted he was sensitive about his deformity. I really don't think I had ever noticed it truly, Connolly said many years later. This was early on in our relationship. Sinatra then went on to spill out the whole story of his birth, his great weight, thirteen and a half pounds, the ripping forceps, the way he'd essentially been left for dead. There was no outburst of emotion, Connolly recalled. There was instead an obvious, lingering bitterness about what he felt had been a stupid neglect of his infant self to concentrate only on his mother, intimating that he was sort of ripped from her entrails and tossed aside. Otherwise, his torn ear might have been tended to. In the years immediately following the harrowing birth of her only child, Dolly Sinatra seems to have compensated in her own way. She became a midwife and sometime abortionist. For the latter activity, she got a nickname, Hatpin Dolly, and a criminal record. And while she sometimes refused to accept payment for terminating pregnancies, she could afford the generosity. Her legitimate business of midwifery, at $50 per procedure, a substantial sum at the time, helped support her family in handsome fashion. Strikingly, two of her arrests, one in late 1937 and one in February 1939, just three weeks after her son's wedding, neatly bracketed Frank Sinatra's own two arrests in November and December 1938 for the then-criminal offenses of, in the first case, seduction, and, in the second, adultery. Also remarkable is that all these Sinatra arrests were sex-related, and that none of them would have occurred today. What was happening in this family? To begin to answer the question, we have to cast ourselves back into the knockabout Italian streets of Hoboken in the 1920s and 1930s, and into the thoroughly unpsychological household of Dolly and Marty Sinatra. But while it's easy to wonder what effect growing up in such a household could have had on an exquisitely sensitive genius, which Frank Sinatra indisputably was, we must also remember that he was cut from the same cloth as his parents, especially his mother a woman he seems to have hated and loved, avoided and sought out in equal measures throughout his life, a woman whose personality was uncomfortably similar to his own.